the way we've had to work for generations, actually. You know, you just have to be smarter about certain things, know which battles you can and can't fight. I, for instance, personally have learned over the years that every battle is not worth a, a fight. Choose your battles, basically choose the fights that you want to have. And when you do choose them, choose them well and then just go all out and say that this is what I want to do, especially as a woman in the workforce. Nidhi Razdan is an award-winning journalist with NDTV, where she has worked for over 20 years, reporting on politics and diplomacy from countries like Pakistan, China, Afghanistan, and Iran. She has also anchored NDTV's key primetime shows. She's currently the anchor of No Spin, which airs Monday to Thursday at 9.30 p.m. Aditi, what do you think of what we just heard? I wish I had listened to people (laughs) when they told me this in my (laughs) 20s. Yeah. Because, you know, this is one of those things where she is so right. She is so right, is that you have to pick your battles. In my 20s, you know, I was all out. I was all in for everything. And I realized that fighting on all fronts in all battles means that you are simultaneously everywhere and nowhere. You're not going to get anywhere if your energy is diverted into 50,000 places. But if you put your energy into one, two, three places and really commit to them and really do them intelligently, then you will get places. I wish I could tell my 20-year-old self that. Not to say that if you pick one battle over the other, that the other is not as important or as legitimate. No, but you still have the power to then put yourself behind other people who are at the forefront of that battle, right? You can be an ally to them. You can be a support to them. You can amplify their voices. There's so many ways to do it. And it also takes off the load. You feel less guilty about it and you get more done. So I think that's brilliant advice. I think so too. And I'm just so excited to talk to Nidhi today as well about her own story, you know, how she's seen roles for women in journalism evolve over time and how to put your voice into conversations and really sort of insert yourself and participate. So let's bring her on. Hi, Nidhi. We are so excited to have you here on Women in Labor today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Christina and Aditi, for having me. It's so nice to be here. I wonder if we can maybe start with just a bit about your own story. I know that you grew up in a household where you were surrounded by journalism and that you knew what you wanted to do from a pretty young age. But can you tell us a little bit about how you found your way into your career? And I know you've been at NDTV now for more than two decades. So tell us a bit more about that. Well, you're right. I did grow up in a house of journalism because my dad was a journalist for more than 50 years by the time he retired a few years ago. And so watching the news on television or reading the newspaper was like brushing your teeth. You just had to do it. And it was part of the routine. So there was a lot of interest in current affairs. But to be really honest, I went through the four stages of career choices that every child goes through, which is first you want to be an astronaut. And then you realize that your mathematics is pathetic. You're scared of flying. So I don't think you're going to get into outer space if you don't like flying, things like that. What kind of a problem? Uh, Then I went through the stage of wanting to be in medicine. And uh, I thought my parents would be really excited that I was taking biology as my senior subjects in school. And my dad was like, oh, my God, why? Why do you want to study so much? Why don't you do something fun with your life? So he was the very antithesis of what an Indian father is and my mother, Hmm. too. 
so I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Then I went through the stage of wanting to do fashion designing. So I sat for this uh, entrance exam for NIFT, which is the National Institute of Fashion Technology, the best school in India. And I really quickly realized I have zero aptitude to draw because they wanted us to design a shawl for a camel or something. And <laughs> yeah. mine was a, some kind of four-legged something and it was really awful. So I realized, okay, I might like fashion or I might like clothes, but that doesn't mean I can design clothes. So hang on, just reel it in. And then... I was, so I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do, but it was my mother and I was in college and she said, well, have you ever thought about television? Because private TV news was a new thing. And she first said journalism. I said, well, I don't want to do what my dad does because then people will compare us and I don't want any comparisons. But she said, well, TV is different and he's totally has stage fright. So there's no comparison. And it just put an idea in my head. And then after I was in college, I went to do a diploma in uh, mass communication at the Indian Institute of Mass Communication, which is again sort of the top institute for television journalism. They have an entrance exam and everything. I topped my class. And after that, I went to NDTV thinking, okay, I'm so cool, right? I've topped my class. I'm just like the cat's whiskers. I'm going to get this internship. And I was told that we don't take interns. Please come another time. And ah. uh, yeah. So that was fun. That <laughs> broke my heart for about six months. <laughs> so the person who did that knows who he is. Um, yeah. If you're listening <laughs> right now, boo. Yeah. <laughs> he knows who he is and I love him. And yeah. I left my CV there. And about six months later, they were doing interviews for reporters. They were hiring reporters and about seven or eight of us were called in and two of us were hired. And that's how NDTV started and has continued pretty much to this day, 22 years now. You know, the sense of persistence or the sense of creating an opportunity for yourself. What kind of advice would you give someone who is up against like, literally, we don't take interns. We don't do this. Right. And then you go ahead and you create something like that for yourself. What is the number one dickhead for someone to go create something like this for themselves? Firstly, don't give up. And also, I'll just tell you very honestly, in my case, I think a lot of people made presumptions that because my dad was a senior journalist that he knew people at NDTV and helped me get in. And that's not true. He never met Radhika and Pranoy until after I was hired. And he didn't know them. Otherwise, I would have got that internship on day mm. one. I wouldn't have been turned away. I also got turned down at another channel for an internship. So I think the thing is to not give up and to persist. It's very, very difficult. And frankly, I also tell people that if you do know somebody and if you know someone who knows someone, if they can help you get a leg in, just take it. Because you won't survive in the profession if you're crap at what you do, right? You'll only survive and be there long term if you're good at what you do. So if someone can give you a helping hand, great. Take it. If someone can give you a recommendation, take it. But then the onus is on you to do well and to prove yourself. Yeah. I wonder, you know, here on our podcast, a lot of what we look at, the main focus of women in labor is looking at why women are dropping out of the workforce and what we can do about it. And I know you said at NDTV, at least when you look at news anchors, there is a surplus of women represented as news anchors. Why do you think that opportunity was there for women for anchoring the news? 
not just anchoring, to be honest, even editorial. And that's been from the beginning. So I've actually been very privileged because NDTV is kind of a bubble. It's like an island where you live, where things are mm. nice and, you know, women run the show and there's equal opportunity and nobody's been sexually harassed. And, you know, these are sort of very idealistic uh, bubbles to grow up in. That doesn't mean the struggles are not real for other colleagues of mine in other organizations. But for me personally, it was it was a wonderful experience because you had your top editors as women, your top anchors as women, you know, many people on the desk who were just driving the everyday news are women even now. And we would often be told that, you know, you, we need to hire some guys now. We need more men in the newsroom. But it created this very healthy environment. I'm not necessarily saying that women are always good for other women. But I think that as reporters, we weren't really differentiated, you know, in terms of the toughness of an assignment wasn't based on your gender. So it could be very much a woman reporter who would be sent to a war zone or to cover a natural disaster or to go somewhere in the middle of the night for a shoot without thinking twice. And I have to say that when I became executive editor of NDTV and I had certain responsibilities in terms of assigning reporters, I was a little bit more careful with my female colleagues in situations where it could be a little volatile, like a riot or something. And just to ensure that they always went with a male camera person, for example, just for their safety or where there might be rowdy crowds, etc. But otherwise, you didn't think twice about putting women out there in the field. And that, I think, was the greatest experience for me personally. Yeah, and, and, you know, NDTV has been sort of the exception to the norm for a very long time when it comes to gender representation behind and in front of the camera. The thing that, you know, strikes me as we hear about your story and we did a bunch of research. Why is journalism as an art form more conducive to the voices of women? You know, I actually think that's an interesting question because when I joined, I was 22 years old and very idealistic and it, by the way, wasn't just NDTV that was showing the way as far as women journalists were concerned, frankly, in the print media. So I started covering politics pretty early on. And I was so happy and surprised to see women journalists, political journalists, you know, asking tough questions of political parties and their leaders at their daily press briefings. Those were the days when, you know, people still did press conferences. So, you know, you could ask them tough questions. <laughs> but, you know, they were really amazing. These were these women who came from a, a much older generation than mine, who I would thank today for having created those spaces for us. Like Nina Vyas, for example, she is a veteran political journalist. And you should have seen Nina, you know, she would be like, tough as nails, you know, in that press conference and say, you're not answering my question and what is this? There were so many others like her who were really pioneers. And I think what's interesting about that generation is that they really faced a lot of resistance from the boys club, especially political journalism. It's very often a boys club, you know, let's drink at the press club, a, a drink at somebody's house. And, you know, these women paved the way for the rest of us. And I have covered, for example, the foreign ministry for years, like since 2005. And some of the top reporters on that beat are women. And they're all my friends, like Sohasni Heather, Indrani Bagchi, who's not a journalist any longer, but Geeta Mohan, Smita Sharma, Maya Mirchandani. Uh, so many of them are women. These are the people who sort of have created spaces for the rest of us, you know, to come in. You know, I wonder, a lot of women struggle with putting their voice out there, asking questions, and even, say, in a meeting, interjecting. You know, you have such a prominent platform where you do that, you know, where you have to really put yourself out there, insert yourself into conversations. 
and get questions in. But I think that this is something universally that everyone who's listening to this have something to learn from, which is, you know, how did you develop that ability to get that question in or put your voice in, especially in, say, a male-dominated space? And do you have any concrete advice for women who are just starting out trying to do that in many different ways, you know, whether that's at home or in their own work? I would say, firstly, I was, again, lucky because of the work environment, you know, where I work, but also the fact that I had so much encouragement always from my parents and my father in particular as a journalist who never let me think for a second that I was different because I was a woman journalist. I mean, he never saw it in that way. He never batted an eyelid if I was called in the middle of the night to work. And neither did my mother because she'd seen him do it. So for them, it was the same thing. I know a lot of young women reporters who have worked with me, whose parents would get worried, oh God, you've been called to the office at two in the morning, you know, something you have to fly out for here. And I understand where they're coming from, but I came from that very different background where it, there was no distinction, but I was still often, yes, I found myself in the beginning, at least holding myself back in terms of asking questions. Maybe not so much because I felt it was a room full of men, but you know, you are often unsure of yourself when you're younger. Absolutely. You're not sure if you want to raise your hand and put your opinion, you, what if people think you're stupid, that what you said is stupid, but it's not. And so I would encourage young women in particular, you have nothing to lose. It's a short life. Raise your hand, just go for it. Say what you have to say. Nobody's wrong in any situation. People are entitled to look at a story from different perspectives. There's nothing odd about it or silly about it. Don't let anyone or anything hold you back. Because there will be people who will try to do that, whether it's because you're a woman or whether they see you as a professional rival. Don't let them hold you back because you have to see everything as an opportunity to raise your voice. So you must raise your voice. You start with one question in a meeting, but in subsequent news meetings, you ask a little more and then you push a little more and a little more. So it just, you're just pushing the boundaries with each meeting. You're getting a little more confident and pitching ideas is never easy for any reporter, whether you're a woman or a man, you know, mm. it's, it's very nerve wracking. That's all part of life. That's all part of learning. I think a lot of the things we are sensitive about when we're 23, you just realize by the time you're 43 that, oh my goodness, seriously, that upset me. But that's something that comes with experience. So push yourself a little with every meeting is what I would say. Yeah. And I think I got some good advice once, which was start by acting, pretending the thing you want to be. So if it's brave, pretend. It's not that you have to be like, now I am brave and I will inject myself in every meeting. But maybe it's knowing I'm going to pretend that I'm brave until I am the thing. So even if it's like, let's say you're going to put yourself in there one thing every meeting, you know, you're going to make sure you ask one question or put in one idea and you pretend it until you become it. I think that's a good way to start to get there. That's good advice. In fact, I'm going to take that advice from now on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this, and I, so there are two things that struck me, right, is that I also, whenever I was in a in a room, I realized that the way to kind of get used to being in that room was to say something and it didn't even have to be something super valuable like it didn't have to be an earth shattering revelation no it was just I was like I just want to get used to the sound of my voice in front of these people yeah and so I would like you know pass a comment or like say something stupid and then if two people sniggered great and if nobody did as you say like nobody died we're exactly. all still alive and we're all going to come back and sit here tomorrow in the meeting maybe where I'll pitch another terrible idea and then uh, <laughs> you know <laughs> exactly 
and you're participating. I mean, that doesn't mean inserting yourself so much in the conversation that you don't let other people speak, mm. but at least you give it a shot. And I think that you shouldn't go back and regret that you didn't try and that you mm. didn't make an attempt to at least put yourself out there. Even if it's to compliment a colleague or to just say that, okay, that's a great idea. Maybe you can do this as well with it or just a small thing. We're all different people, right? We all have different personalities. Some people are more inward. They're more shy. They find it difficult to raise a voice in a bigger room full of people. But I think you will slowly find that voice once you're confident about yourself, what you're doing, your own ideas. And at the end of the day, it's not going to kill you. So just do it. Doesn't matter. Please remember that 90% of the people in the room with you are probably as afraid to express themselves as you are. And I think, you know, something we can also look at for those of us who are a bit older is we always try to toss it over to folks who are younger. Meaning if you're in that meeting, ask the person that's younger, oh, what do you think about that? Or yeah. you had said something interesting to me about that outside of the meeting yesterday. Can you share that with the group? That's another good way to help bring other people in. You know, I've noticed in whenever, like I was watching a bunch of your videos and I, was, I think I was watching something from like the early 2000s. And um, it is so cool actually to see you, the way you sort of like, if someone is like, you know, talking over you or talking over another guest, there's a face. There's a face you have where you're like, okay, now, you know, children. Stop it, children. <laughs> is, I, and I noticed that. I think you got that in like sometime around 2015. Is you got the, okay, children, this is my classroom. We're done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that, that look, I think you got around 2015. That's funny because you're right. I think that's because TV debates just became just more and more abysmal in, in that time, you know. They just became crazy and everything is so polarized. You know, everything is just a tutu meme of the next level. And I think that got to me, by the way, which is why I needed to just take a break for a year because it just became too much. Every day, like even the most serious things you want to talk about just get reduced and become so reductionist into this black and white argument. Mm -hmm. And it's crazy. That's the anchoring part of it. I think the more exciting part was being in the field when one could travel much more. One had the budgets and the resources to be out there much more. It's so different now. Mm. Being a reporter 20 years ago and being a TV reporter today is a sea of difference. Yeah. Different length of time on story, production. Yeah, everything. I, I mean, budgets, resources, you know, like we did so much travel back in the day and we could just go and pitch an idea. What we thought were crazy ideas. It was 2001. I'd just been in NDTV for a couple of years. I went to Pranoy and I said that I'd like to go to Tibet. Like, you know, it's the easiest thing to do. He's like, okay, fine. If you get the visa, go. It took me some time, but I got the visa. I managed to do a documentary from there, which I'm so proud of. Mm. Uh, or I said I wanted to, I've got an interview with the Iranian foreign minister. I'd like to go to Tehran, but I'd like to stay for a week and do a documentary on Iran and the US. And uh, yes, you know, I can't mm. do that now because we don't have the money for that. Yeah. Stuff like that. You could just go in and pitch these supposedly sort of out there ideas and do that. But it's much harder for TV reporters today. You get kind of shunted around from one event to another. There's no real time to investigate or really research a story very well. Because there's a 24-hour news cycle, you're competing with other channels. So very often you get reduced to doing these live OBs, little sound bites. And it's tougher because you're often doing the camera work yourself as well now. Mm, uh, yeah. So it's very tech-driven. And I've seen that transition from just mainstream news, 
with a camera person and a producer in the field to like doing everything yourself. I've done it all. Ask me, I've done it all. Yeah, all of the jobs. Yeah. I know I worked in production and I always say like I do everything from move the furniture around. Exactly. To like cameras, lights, everything. <laughs> all of Which the is jobs. a good thing. I think reporters and camera people should know each other's jobs and what each person's role is because you're a team and you should have respect for each person's role in television. It's just so much harder when you're having as a reporter to now be handling camera, sound, mm. you know, is a car going to run me over while I'm doing this selfie interview, which actually yeah. happened to me in Israel a few years ago. I'm interviewing the ambassador. I'm on a selfie stick. It's live, okay? And there's like a truck coming behind us. It's going to run over us. Oh, no. And I'm like holding the ambassador on camera. I said, like, come this way, come this way. You know, let me, let, yeah. let you let not get run over. Let save our lives. Let me save our lives while we do this live TV interview. So that's true of any gender, Khair. But, you know, it's it's so good to see young women reporters out there doing all this. Really sort of embracing this newness as well. Journalism is much more challenging today. TV is much more challenging today. And there are so many young women reporters out there who are doing it so damn well. It's wonderful to see. Yeah. You know, and I'm curious to ask you about, you mentioned how anchoring... Now it feels much more black and white. Production budgets are now to the selfie stick point, yeah. you know, and slightly more complex. But everybody in media debates this all the time. But where does that eventually go? Like if things have to be so black and white and our production values for field stuff continues to decrease, where does that, where, where are we in five to 10 years? Oh, gosh, I don't know where I am in five months. But uh, <laughs> in, uh, genuinely, I just think you you have to just sort of play the cards you're dealt with. Mm. So if, for example, television in general became very much about ratings and about television debates, then I'm proud that NDTV found its own sort of space within that crazy space that everyone mm. else was doing, where everyone else was pitting communities against each other or Hindus, Muslims and all the rest of it. And we didn't do that. We still did debates, but we did them and we still do them differently. So I think that in life, you can't control everything. You have the cards in front of you. Just do the best that you can within that. So yeah, if that means that, you know, you cover a story on your own with your camera phone, fine. You're going to do that. Just do it well, because that's the way it is. Namita Bhandare is sort of the Annamata of this podcast, okay? <laughs> the idea for this podcast came to Christina after she read uh, one of the major pieces of research was uh, Namita's 12-part series on India spend about Indian female labor force participation rates, okay? Which, uh, by the time I've said the last word, I am asleep. And she sort of like delved into it and, you know, <laughs> has this wealth of information. And she, we had her on the first episode of this season, and she said something that she had not said in the first season. And she said, you know, with the way female labor force participation is plummeting and then the way it's going back up, but not in a quality that's good, right? Because women are entering the workforce again, but they're entering at lower wage rates, uh, you know, worse working conditions, whether it's in the formal or the informal economy. And she said, you have got to be political. She said that, you know, like now... Especially in 2022, there are lots of factors that sort of are contributing to this. And you have got to, as a woman in the workforce or as an Indian citizen, you have got to be political. Do you think that, you know, that holds true? Firstly, I love Namita. She's awesome. I think that holds true of the way we've had to work for generations, actually. 
you know, you just have to be smarter about certain things, know which battles you can and can't fight. So I, for instance, personally have learned over the years that every battle is not worth a, a fight. Choose your battles, basically choose the fights that you want to have. And, and when you do choose them, choose them well and then just go all out and say that, you know, this is what I want to do, especially as a woman in the workforce. And I think it is worrying because I think COVID has changed everything so dramatically across the world. And the burden just fell completely on women, whether it was looking after the child, online schooling, which was rubbish as well, doing your own job. So many people just had to take a step back from the workforce. And this is the formal sector. So I don't know if that's what Namita meant in terms of just perhaps wading through things a little more cleverly. But my interpretation of that would be to just, you know, choose your battles wisely and not fight every battle. Do you think that every generation goes through this kind of thing? Like that even our parents' generation had this massive struggle and these moments of complete helplessness and then they powered through and now they snigger at us having these moments of complete helplessness. I'm sure they did. I mean, when my dad became a journalist, my grandfather was against it because he came from Kashmir. Everybody only did medicine or engineering. And when they heard he wanted to be a journalist, they were like so horrified. And he left his house on a train to Bombay with like a little money in his pocket and just defied them. And obviously that was a struggle for him to like go against the wishes of his family and just prove to them that no journalism is not just for people who got a third division in college, which he did. But I'm just saying, you know. Yeah. So I think, yeah, of course, I think that generation had different struggles. We have different struggles. I'm in my mid-40s now and I see younger kids who come into the profession. They have new struggles and we need to be sensitive to that. I mean, I see people often from my generation like, oh, yeah. You know, it's like that CEO who said the other day about 18-hour workdays and don't do Rona Dhona. Obnoxious. Mm. Okay, now I did that. I did the 18-hour workdays, but I did it because I wanted to. And, you know, you were conditioned to do it that way. And, yeah, and we didn't know any better. Exactly. In the last few years, I realized that, boss, it's not okay yeah. to do that. Which is why I now do a four-day work week. I have refused to go back to five days a week because I need a life. I need to celebrate my mother's birthday, which I missed for many years. And it made me cry. Or just be with my family on certain holidays, which I didn't know existed. Like somebody would say, Aaj Diwali acha? You know, like mm. seriously. And it's okay. I know as a journalist, I may still have to. So, you know, you trade off like this year, I got the Sarah off. I volunteered to come in on Diwali if, if they need me to come in. That's fine. Yeah. But at least I have a work-life balance. So I understand. I'm actually happy that this generation is more self-aware about having that work-life balance. Why shouldn't you? People are more aware about looking after their mental health. I'm so glad that they are. Because in our time, it would be like, no, no, no. I mean, you can't see a therapist or you can't talk to somebody because what will people say? You yeah. know, things like that. I'm so glad that people are having more honest conversations about this. It's a struggle, but at least we're getting there. We're getting somewhere. So I think like each generation has to understand what the next generation is facing and help, whether it's as a woman. And look, it's even, I mean, in the context of women in the workspace, what used to be acceptable in a newsroom in terms of the kind of jokes or just like, Maybe, you know, your male colleagues hugging you or touching you. You may not have thought twice about it then. But in today's context, I realize how that would be so wildly inappropriate. Hmm. What we thought was okay 20 years ago. Because we were conditioned to think that that was all right. That it was okay for my colleague to make a really sort of sexually explicit joke in the middle of a newsroom. I would be so uncomfortable with that today. 
when I look back, it's like I can't watch James Bond movies. Have you seen how how, how <laughs> yeah. bad they are? The old yeah, like yeah. how my friends are like, oh God, you're such a killjoy. Yeah, James Bond is okay. You know, 1950s it was a different type. But I was like, I was like, God, guys, he's a rapist. I'm just saying that even in the workplace, there were so many things that just passed for okay. Yeah, in a certain generation. Yeah, and Namita, when uh, she did tell us that in an interview, is in her generation. You know, you didn't speak up. I mean, one thing she said is she's so glad about this generation's brand of feminism because they won't take it. And she said it was our conditioning. You know, that's what we knew was that you had to go along with it. You weren't afforded that. You didn't have that bandwidth to be able to speak up. Yeah, exactly. She's right. You know, and there's a tendency now. Okay, if we suffered it, then you should also suffer it. What? Like, I mean, no, as- of course not. Why should you? You know better now. Yeah. You, you. I mean, we all know better. Namita's generation went through a certain thing. Mine was different. We were a lot more outspoken. I think there's a lot less nonsense that we would put up with. Also, because we were conditioned to push back. I think that has a lot to do with just the environment you grow up in, or even within the newsroom. There was a, because I think we had so many women and women driving the newsroom. It just made such a big difference. Mm. You know, when you have men only male editors or an, a very male dominated newsroom where they only see things from a certain perspective, it makes a big difference. And the fact that I was able to grow in my career in a newsroom that sort of gave that respect to women in the media that made a big difference. A huge difference. Knowing I could go to my editor and have a frank conversation about a lot of things, or that I would not be discriminated against for an assignment because I'm a woman. Mm. Quite the opposite. I would be encouraged to do it because I'm a woman. You know, you mentioned sort of mental health and harassment, and I was wondering if we could also talk a bit about online harassment. I know you've said that you try not to post because trolling is a challenge. Talk us through what is that like and what strategies have you adapted to deal with online harassment? Block, block, block. The best button Twitter ever invented. Uh, <laughs> I've said this many times before. I cannot stand social media. I despise it. I loathe it. And the first time I had to go on it was because like every channel was promoting their shows and stuff like that. So we were like, everyone has to create a Twitter account and tweet about their shows. And I was like, oh, okay, fine. And then I just went off it again because I didn't like the harassment. But then all these fake accounts in my name started popping up, and I ignored that also until people started WhatsApping me, yar, and saying, "Tumne ye bola? You said this on Twitter?" Mm. And I was like, "Do you really think I would say this? Are you a fool? You've known me for twenty years." Mm. So uh, you know, when people started believing these accounts because they just put your photograph, and of course that must be real. It's like my aunt's WhatsApp forwards in the morning. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And so then I mean I kept writing to Twitter they kept pulling the accounts down but then they reached out to me and said look why don't you just get a verified account and that will just stop this and it did. So then once I had it I was like okay let me use it in a way that I do post my own opinion once in a while but not as frequently as I used to. And online trolling is real it's nasty. I mean at one level you do become a little more thick-skinned over time so a lot mm. of things don't bother you anymore but Sometimes the abuse, the sexism, it's hurtful. Who can pretend that it's not hurtful? And I think the best thing you can do is to try and just not, you know, go to your mentions as much as possible. And if you do <laughs> see something that's abusive, just block it. Yeah, that's okay. It's not a violation of anyone's free speech. To all the bhaktas out there, I'm sorry. You don't know what free speech means. You are free to give me gullies and say what you want on your timeline. I am free to block you. आप जी बोलते जाओ अपने टाइम लाइन जो आपको करना बोलते जाओ आई एम नॉट स्टॉपिंग योर फ्री स्पीच आई हैव अ फ्रीडम टू नॉट सी दैट नॉन सेंस सो इट्स नॉट गुड आई मीन आई थिंक इट वॉज वन 
news story that had come out recently i i'm the third most trolled woman journalist in the country and i actually see what people like rana ayub yeah. for instance goes through it's at a scale that is a hundred times worse than what i face mm-hmm. because she's a muslim and mm. she's outspoken yeah. and she's a woman my god and it's absolutely vile mm. what you go through and my only advice to anyone and any woman going through this is that you're not alone we are so many of us mm. who are in the same situation and just please remember that so many of those who troll you i mean it's a a lot of them are bots and you know there it's just an online organized army no guesses largely by who but by the way i faced nasty trolling from all political ideologies and some of the worst trolling i faced is from the so called left of center uh, political parties like i am very happy because everyone gives me galis so i'm doing my job <laughs> but i'm saying i'm just saying that if you're not alone and please remember that it says more about them than it does about you hmm. and i think just being graceful about it and just keep doing your work i'm not saying it won't hurt but i think if you have a good support system and you're surrounded by good good friends and a supportive family that makes a big difference so talk to them talk to your support system whoever they may be whether it's your parents whether it's your closest friends and you will realize that things are you know not as awful as they may seem in that online bubble that we live in very often they're not yeah i think that's really good advice it says more about them than it does about you for what it's worth i have a nidhi loving timeline like everyone on my timeline loves you they're like there was that interview that went viral of you of that friggin ranveer singh's uh, ranveer oh god oh. i became a meme yeah 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 <laughs> that was and these college kids were so excited <laughs> these college kids actually i i met them they're like ma'am firstly ma'am like freaks me out you're a meme like this is so awesome i was like 22 years of hard work <laughs> and it has been summed up in ranveer singh's act. and you know like some crazy moment of like hysteria and i felt so bad you know i felt so bad when i laughed because it was so spontaneous and i actually apologized to vedika on air i said i'm really sorry i shouldn't i mean this is your view i i'm not laughing at you i'm just laughing at the predicament that we're in and she was actually quite a good sport later also then you know she came back for some recording and she was also laughing about it and you know saying that i didn't realize i would become such a hit i said neither did i <laughs> So, that was well, crazy. That is crazy. And Nidhi, it's been such a pleasure to have you here on Women in Labor. We really appreciate your time. It's been both fun and insightful. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. For more information on the podcast, visit womeninlabor.com or search for Women in Labor on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook. Women in Labor is made by executive producers Christina McGillivray, Aditi Mittal, and Laura Quinn. Head of production May Thomas. Senior producer Divita Oberoi. Chief of staff Priya Kapoor. Marketing director Manya Sachdeva. American Center team Joy King, Horva Jassy, Minjon Bey. and Radhika Sangar junior producer Niket Nake junior editor Yash Hirve mix engineer Kartik Kulkarni this podcast is generously supported by a grant from the American Center New Delhi the opinions findings and conclusions are those of women in labor and do not necessarily reflect those of the United States Department of State